Hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast. We are now going to be diving into chapter 8, the neuroscience of values. Starting out, I would like to focus on the little uh, poetry section down bottom where it says, They said, don't let your feelings confuse you. Little did they realize that confusion arose when you could not feel. So about this uh, this uh, poetry section uh, in particular, um, it really uh, brings home a lot of the work that we already started on where it was like, you know, your feelings are a very important part of figuring out your three goddess braid. And this is the section in which we're really going to get into um, the science behind it as well, which I really love. Um, to start off this chapter, um, there is a little section involving a tree. But before I do that, um, I would like you to talk a little bit about um, uh, the beginning of this chapter uh, in which you had to, uh, <laughs> uh, you, you, you felt as if you, you had something urgent to do. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you can say it yeah uh, yeah 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 i had to go relieve myself during yes. a meditation sit yes so right yeah go ahead yeah I, I started off with that story because it was it was hard for me to write this because it's a little bit embarrassing but then it was one of the most um insightful moments i would say you know, we, if you think about it, our lives are driven so much by fear. And, and I don't, don't even mean the conscious kind of fear, right? We, we are building stories in our mind all day long about interpersonal relationships, our work, and, and so on and so forth. But then there's a layer below that, which is the body functioning by itself. And that also has certain wirings of fear because that's what we need to survive. So, so this is as primal as it gets. You got to go relieve yourself. You got to go. <laughs> Body is signaling. Don't, uh, don't ignore it. Because as kids, we realize messy things happen if you ignore it. So here I am sitting on uh, what was the day five of a ten-day vipassana meditation course, and I had to, um, I had to take a call. And, and what had happened on the previous day was that I, I took that call. Like I, I felt my stomach was uh, not doing great. I got up and I felt pretty bad about it, but it was, uh, I was not well. And I almost dropped out of the course. And, and just, I was pretty sure that in the beginning that, okay, I, I, I probably should drop out. This is not gonna work out. I'm not, I just can't even take the next step. But somehow, you know, I just thought, okay, before I leave, maybe I should at least do the work that's assigned in these courses. There is some some uh, work that is usually assigned, and, and it's like some cleaning work. So I'd taken up the cleaning, toilet cleaning that day. And it was heavy-duty work, because this is not one toilet. This, is, this was a pretty big bathroom. It took an hour. It took a little bit longer because I was not, going fast. I could not go fast. And so I, I took my time and, and felt that was my meditation in a sense with the eyes open, did it. And you know, I, don't know, I don't know if it took an hour or not time. I don't, I'm not clear on right now, 
but it, yeah, I remember the feeling that, oh, okay, I at least did something useful. <laughs> and I thought, okay, let me take one last walk around the course. And, and then I'll go to the manager's office and say, I'm, I'm dropping out of the, of this 10 day course. And, the, and then the course is very interesting. It's, it's basically a, a, a very ancient meditation practice where one by one, your senses uh, are blocked very voluntarily. It's not uncomfortable. It's just that you're not going to open your eyes. So you're spending many, many hours of the day meditating. So you've blocked your vision. You're not speaking to anyone. No one's speaking to you. Your hearing is blocked. You speak when you're spoken to, which is very rarely. And, um, and you're just focusing on your mind. You're doing deep surgery of the mind. Food is taken care of, no problem. Everything is taken care of. You have a comfortable place to uh, sleep and so on. And so in that context, the idea is to look at the tendencies of the mind and not react. That's the goal of Vipassana meditation, to build that skill set of non-reaction. Just see what's really there. And I, I reacted. I, mean, you know, I panicked when my stomach was upset, and of course, that's what brought me there. And so I'm, I'm taking this walk now in, in this campus in North Fork. This is near Yosemite in California. And every step is painful because I'm you know, maybe a little bit dehydrated and just not functioning. Right? So every step, there's gratitude. And I was like, okay, I got to come this far and this is great. And, and then I started noticing some things, you know, when I'm, but this last walk, what do I see? I start noticing the trees around. And I notice that it's dusty and it's hot and the trees are standing tall without complaining. You know, and then I notice the flowers are doing that and I notice the grass is doing that. And suddenly I realized that, hey, everything in nature is doing its part, except for me. <laughs> and, and, and except for what I mean by that is, my mind sabotages my nature because here it is. I must have eaten something in a greedy way, like something that upon deeper reflection, I should not have eaten. And that caused this problem. And yet my stomach, which is a part of me and a part of nature is doing its part to get me back on my feet. It's struggling, struggling, struggling. Then it gives up because it can't go any further. And then after giving up, it tries to get back. And it just brought so much gratitude for my body. Like every part of the body is doing its part to support my life. Could I at least acknowledge that? Could I say thank you? You know, it's going to be there till my dying breath trying to support me without ever questioning what am I doing and why am I doing it? The only thing that questions is my mind. And the, just that realization brought a tremendous amount of gratitude in me and a feeling that feeling was, hey, this is why I'm here. Like this insight is exactly why I'm here. It's not just sitting on the cushion, it's the whole process. And I knew in that walk that I was gonna finish the course. That was the previous day, fourth day. And and this was crazy, right? I was, <laughs> I was taking the walk with the intention, I'll take one round and go quit. No, I didn't quit, that walk turned everything around. And so then the next day comes and uh, again, I have the same situation where I feel like I need to go and panic, right? And, and then I say, no, I'm not going to go. I promised myself I will not get up. Now, this is very dangerous stuff I'm sharing. So if you're listening, please don't try this at home. 
please uh if you need to go you need to go don't don't do these things i i was just ready for something like this and i i'm not saying people should do this this is not a way to wisdom or anything this was just at that moment what called out to me that i had to crack through the mystery of my mind mind and body and i told myself I'm not getting up and and this was at a at a sit so every day you have these sits for an hour where you're not supposed to flinch even like and it's not that something bad will happen if you flinch it's just that three times a day you are invited to develop that determination that's what it is and so i decided i'd rather die than flinch and one hour is not you know i thought okay let me see what happens what is the body trying to tell me and what i found was there was the sensation coming which gave me the signal that i had to go but there was something more and it was my mind amplifying that signal and creating panic and that panic is what drove the reaction and i saw that i saw that very very clearly that the panic is being manufactured by my mind and so i i just told myself oh i see it i see it okay i i acknowledge the signal thank you very much i promise you i will take care of it as soon as the sit ends and that's it and suddenly the panic disappeared and i knew it was going to be okay and then of course after the sit ended i did go to care of myself and it wasn't uh, no mishap happened thankfully and uh, it's uh, it was pretty clear that this was an exaggeration of the signal the mind the panic that had happened it was going to be fine and that was a huge insight that there are all these layers that we've created of autopilot that are not necessary you you have a lot more control if you see if you see what's really there so it's uh, so so this is a pretty phenomenal insight i just think about think back to that time like oh that was a great lesson that the body gave me that the trees gave me so very grateful for it mm mm Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, I love it so much because it 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 makes me think of fasting too. Uh just like how it, it one of the I mean I know like in a lot of uh cultures and everything like fasting has um you know a, a spiritual component that people the reason why they do it. But um I've also found like for fasting it really teaches you like hmm like I don't have to just respond to uh you know when my body is telling me i'm hungry that i have to give into it it doesn't have to be a knee jerk reaction um and you uh give like an example on page 251 where it talks about it says um um a wind wa- wafts by and carries on it the scent of the shampoo used by the woman next to me that's a stimulus I can tell it is a lavender shampoo recognition. I am reminded of the smell of my mom's hair from when I'm a young child. Data that's the database. And I feel a soft pleasant love in my heart at this memory. Sensation. So I smile, which is a reaction. All of this is happening very quickly. So quickly that we don't even realize it. We can control almost none of it. Almost except the very last step. kind of goes back to uh kind of like we um that saying like we can can't control life but we can control uh how we react to it um 
in um on 252 uh you say as i when you're talking about uh your stomach uh <laughs> it says uh there were sharp shooting pains that would keep arising and going away as i watched each shooting pain with full concentration a big realization dawned these were not actual motions where something undesirable would happen they were instead signals of alarm to which i'd normally respond without delay and due to the quick response conditioning I wouldn't notice that there was actually a decision opportunity. And I feel like this like is starting to get um, a little deeper into uh, the book itself uh, because we're starting to get into the fact like we have this, we have a reaction to whatever comes our way. But if we start to pause and really evaluate what is happening, we might be able to make a decision that is, actually actually the decision that we really want to make um which i find fascinating um can you talk a little bit more about the um how do you pronounce it vipassana vipassana yeah it's vipassana that's how it's pronounced vipassana yeah the the meditation um yeah although there's no sh the way the practitioners call it is vipassana vipassana yeah okay yeah it's it's a it's a very ancient form of meditation the the people who teach it they trace it back to the buddha and uh, i'm told that you know different places in the world it is taught and and they all they have some variations in thailand and and burma this particular one came from burma uh, and of course, it came to Burma from India, long, long time back. There are all these histories behind it. But what, what is more interesting and relevant is it's a, it's a way of deep observation, which doesn't require any kind of belief system. It's, it's like, you just go, you follow these rules, and then you see what's coming up. And so the very, the, the lectures that, that go with the course are more to aid the observation process and deepen the observation. So it's it's a it's it's not for everyone. I would say it's it's really for people who uh, want to commit to that deep observation. It takes a it's a, it definitely takes a little bit of strength. I would say a little bit of strength, concentration. And once people are ready in their life to to make that kind of commitment, I, I think it's one of the most um, profound experiences you can see. You know, the, the growing up, I'd seen. I had read a lot of scriptures about, oh, you know, you have these deepening insights about yourself in, in, in India. And it's like, okay, this sounds like something only very special people can access. And what Vipassana does, it says, no, this is for everybody. This is a science. So it's a science of observation and we'll make the, we'll create the context so everybody can observe this. So I, that's basically the context behind Vipassana. And then the, the three sits there of, Aditan is what it's called. It's uh, it's it basically translates into sits of strong determination, and and if people are able to see this, and you know, it's 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 quite an experience. Now, I'm not saying this is the only way to experience it. There are many many different ways to develop insight and observation through many many different practices. So I I, I want to be careful and say I'm not saying everybody should go do this. I'm simply saying that this is one option amongst many we have found in our world to deepen our understanding of how we make decisions. Excellent. Okay. So that's, that's really good for people to, uh, 
it's, it's something that um, people might want to consider getting into as well, or, or looking into. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and, then, and, uh, and I'll just, uh, I'll oh, just say that the reason I'm including it is not, not my, my intent is not to um, say, hey, everybody should try this. My intent really is that, look, we're finding all these things right in the book so far, right, the feelings. So now we are going to make a deep dive into the, into the science of it. Science is not just what happened in the last two, three hundred years. I mean, there's a there's almost like a you know industrial revolution version of science, but then we've existed a lot a lot longer than that. And other cultures now now we're realizing as we're coming out of the shackles of colonialism, we're realizing that there have been entire scientific cultures in India. And, uh, and and the Far East, which have made a pretty big contribution. And, and that adds to the validity of what we are noticing because they build that, they build that empirical observation process. And it's not that you have to take the word of any scripture. You go there, you follow the process, you get the results. So it's for anybody as a scientist must have that standard. It's like, hey, if I follow these steps, if it is science, <laughs> these results ought to follow. So, so in that sense, it's here because it, it tells you this, this has been a long understood science. It's just, it's outside of the last two, 300 years of what we've known, although even that gap is closing. So that's the next part of this chapter. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Mm. And it, yeah, and you know, that when we're talking about the, uh, that science involving emotion and feelings, like I, I was actually ignorant to this as well. I didn't know that there was so much well, uh, it was so well studied. Um, on 256, it says, we now know that the gut feeling is not just a figure of speech. We have neurons to the order of 100 million in our gut. Our heart has 40,000 neurons itself, and we are still learning about how it communicates with the brain in our head. The view of a monolithic brain in our head is slowly shifting. Scientists now consider our heart and our gut to be satellite brains. So I was like, I, I was like what? Um, <laughs> and um, a little further down, it says, a really crude way of understanding his statement, um, which was the neurocortex becomes engaged along with the older brain core and rationality results from their concerted activity. A really crude way of understanding his statement is that we are wired biologically to use both knowledge and feelings as part of our fundamental reasoning apparatus. Um, a little further down, it turns out that we have had ample time studying people with ventromedial prefrontal cortex damage. This is the part of the brain where emotion is processed. People with damage to this area have difficulty processing emotion and hence, should have become better decision makers, making unbiased decisions. In reality, they end up becoming much worse decision makers, which I, that that's insane. So like, <laughs> I was like, wow. Um, when you came across this, uh, were you surprised or was it something that just validated something you felt you already knew? I was extremely surprised because that's the conditioning people are far too smart to say it out that way that oh emotions are terrible blah blah, blah. uh but 
but that's kind of the implicit bias. It's just like the implicit bias of oh, business is all about just making money, right? It's one of those things that you don't challenge. And here the research tells you, no, that's that's completely wrong. And and it made sense once you understand it that, oh, you know what? How do we make decisions? We make decisions based on preferences. Ultimately, you can have all the alternatives. You can do a good job of uh, filling the space up with good information and alternatives. But when it comes time to make a decision, it's got to be about what you want. And you can't figure out what you want if you don't have preferences, because everything will look the same. And how do you form preferences? It, it, it's through these emotions. It's through a plus one on something that's desirable and a minus one on something that's undesirable. Literally, your brain is counting, literally, which is why I, I mean, hope if you've come to this point in the work, you're not looking at counting the same way again. Like our whole reality is constructed through counting in our brain. It's unbelievable, right? And, and so literally our decision-making comes from that process as well. And in fact, uh, you know, I, I know we skipped over in the earlier pages, the term embodied realism is, is a really good one that, that describes a lot of what we're talking about. That there is, you know, there is this insight development process that comes through the body. And, 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 and so the science of it is when you have these experiences, your body is signaling, I don't like this, or I love this. And it's like some kind of a craving and aversion, if you will. But even those words sound a little bit judgmental. So I don't want to say craving and aversion. I want to just say that, you know, desirable and undesirable. And, and that's how we realize this is what I want. This is what I don't want. That's now, now whether that's insightful or not, whether it's wise, it's a, it's a whole different question. But it's coming through your body. And that's what the neuroscientists are finding, that there's, the body is a whole theater for well, neural activity it's not just your brain but at least it's not just your brain in your head your brain is actually throughout your body it's one big brain mm. one big brain hmm. yeah um an aphorism 8.0 8.1 says feelings don't always misguide us they also guide us without feelings no learning is possible and uh, further down on 257, it says, um, um, uh, Damasio writes in Descartes' Air, in short, somatic markers are a special instance of feelings generated from secondary emotions. Those emotions and feelings have been connected by learning to predicted future outcomes of certain scenarios. In plain speak, if we have learned that a particular prospect isn't good for us from negative experiences of the past, such a prospect coming up in the present time generates emotions before the prospect plays out. This emotion is a big factor in how we feel about the present situation, and it arises before we make our decision in the theater of our body. Like, this is what explains why terrible alternatives like robbing a bank to get rich just won't be in the space of alternatives for most people. Thinking about such a prospect would make most of us sick in the stomach. Um, th yeah, so like, there really is something to not just having what is going on with the brain, but also with the gut. Um, and it's clear that this is a really good chapter, especially for those that um, are quote unquote, more logically minded, 
you could say. Um, and then it goes a little bit more into people with um, without brain damage and how they tend to learn over time. Can, can I make an edit in what you just said? So, so all, notice that all through we have been logically minded. I would, I would just say that this chapter is more for people who need to understand why things are the way they are. Ah, that's a, that's a good point. That's a good point. It goes into um, the a game, um, particularly known as the Iowa Gambling Task. Um, can you explain a little bit about this task and how it's very important to um, learning about our gut feeling um, and how emotions play a part in our decision making? Yeah. So this this is a pretty profound book. It's it's called Descartes' Error by Antonio Damasio. And, and his and his colleagues and the their lab basically came up with this Iowa gambling task where you have two decks of cards you have four decks of cards of which two are stacked a certain way and two are stacked the opposite way. So so the first two let's just call them the bad decks where you have high gains and high losses. You're drawing a card and every now and then you get a big win um and and you'll also get if you don't get that big win you'll you'll otherwise get big losses and the other one is a good deck where you will have small wins more often and small losses so so the idea is that you over a period of time if you keep drawing from the bad decks you will you will lose like you will lower your game earnings but if you keep drawing from the good decks, even though they're smaller, they're more consistent. That's where you will you will end up making the most game money as 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 it's set up. And and the researcher's goal was to see how long would it take for you to learn the strategy that's inherent in this game. And what they found was people without that brain damage, the the ventromedial prefrontal frontal cortex damage the people without these are called normals people who don't have the damage they they tended to learn over time that hey avoid the bad decks because yeah you sure enough you may get a big gain once in a while which is high but then you also the losses are much higher and the more frequent so don't don't use that deck uh, whereas people with that area damaged they were getting the signal but they were not able to use it for learning so they, they were able to see with skin conductance response that the signal was coming just before the decision was being made. And yet, unlike the normals, they they were not able to put it into practice with their decision making. That's the big difference. So yeah, that that's the that's the experiment that they did where they demonstrated this. Hmm. And, it's, and it says that um, it, it provides critical insight. Our ability to both recognize and accept our feelings is also what gives us guidance on what is desirable or undesirable. Um, further down, it says uh, on 259 toward the bottom, it says if, uh, if we shut the door toward our feelings, we also shut the door to experiences of wholeness that can only be known through our feelings. Such experiences are the basis for joy and are not an escapade from reality. They're the exact opposite, rooting us to an awareness of the sanctity of life. And um, 
So it's very important for them to know. Um, <laughs> okay, can I pause you there for a moment? Sure. So, so sure. It's it's kind of interesting that you you went there. Um, that's you know if you, if you see what is the goal, right? Why are we talking about this? The paragraph right before this says that the goal of decision analysis, at least according to me, is to develop equanimity. And equanimity in decision-making, meaning we've done the best we can and we're freeing ourselves to make the next best decision possible. And, and you'll find that the ancient meditation system also has the exact same goal of equanimity. Vipassana, they keep talking about equanimity, okay? Now, both these fields, if you are practicing this, it is not hard to imagine that over a period of time, you say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be equipoised as these disturbances are coming in my mind. I'm not going to react. Well, where does that lead? Eventually, you people, sometimes people might misunderstand this to say, oh, I'm just going to ignore all my feelings. And what we're saying is if you did that, your decision-making would lower in quality because now you have no way to distinguish between alternatives. Now, now of course, what you do find is people, as they practice this, their space for, for things in life becomes much larger. They can hold much more stuff. So it is definitely true that if you're going to keep getting emotional, you're not going to be able to hold space for the varied experiences of life. But at the same time, you know, where, where, where does wholeness and joy come in, right? Feelings is such a, a, a single word for such a diversity of experiences. And, and I'm interested in the experiences of wholeness, of joy, creative joy, which we've been talking about in this book. So if you shut yourself off to feelings, be very careful. That's dangerous territory because you might be shutting yourself off to those things that matter profoundly to you out of an erroneous conclusion that they are going to mislead you. That's the point. That's why we're talking about this. And, and in fact, um, right where you, you read the quote, you know, I think the next thing there is Indian psychology. They, and by Indian psychology, I don't mean the last 200 years of industrial science. I'm talking about 5,000 years or more of um, scientific temper, scientific inquiry. And they, they've basically identified three things that seem to go hand in hand. One is reality, the reality as it is in front of you. And the second is awareness, total awareness of that. And the third is joy. And they say that if you, you know, think of this as an equation, if one of them exists, the other two are bound to be there. And you can, you know, so reality, you know, if, if you ground yourself in what is real, the, you know, I'm, I'm explaining it very crudely now, you will automatically become aware of what is so. And you will also, the claim is, you will also be rooted in a feeling of joy. And now think about what we've done so far. We are taking agendas off the table when we are entering the value mapping conversation. We are saying we're going to listen deeply to what is truly there, what is real for this person in front of us. And somehow when we find it, there is a tremendous sense of joy. Like in those moments, um, 
there is just a sense of being understood. There's a, there's a sense of wholeness, the sense of completion. And it feels real. So the real, real thing is there. The reality is there. The awareness of that is there. And the joy is also there. And I've seen this over and over again. And that's what the, the chapters so far have been describing. That when you find it, especially the seventh chapter, it, it just clicks. And now we are deep diving into the feeling of that click. What does that mean? And, and can you can you see it? Can you measure it in some sense? And it, and it almost seems like um, an example of that click um, embodies themselves in a certain person as well. Um, says how your dissertation advisor, uh, Professor Ronald Howard, uh, wrote about someone that uh, may embody that click. Uh, he says, I believe that to be human is to be reasoning as well as compassionate. My ideal here is Buddha. Um, and he talks about how Buddha was probably the first decision analyst. Um, he had a combination of a cool head. Uh, to use the words of J.B. Pratt, um, his, he had a combination of a cool head and a warm heart, a blend which shielded him from sentiment, sentimentality on the one hand and indifference on the, on the other. He was undoubtedly one of the great rationalists of all times, resembling in this respect no one as much as Socrates. Every problem that came his way was automatically subjected to the cold analytical glare of his intellect. First, it would be dissected into its component parts, after which these would be reassembled in logical architect architectonic order with their meaning and import laid bare. Um, and so it, it, it's like they used him as an ideal um, because he could still be kind and warm um, and compassionate while still breaking down logically uh, the issue at hand. Um, so you use, you bring this up in the book. Um, is there a re is there a reason like, did you want to show like, this is an example of someone that seemed to have that, that click? Yeah, it's, a, it's really the principle, right? I mean, people come from different traditions you know, I'm not talking about Buddhism as a religion. I'm just talking about the the philosophy here that, hey, if you use your heart effectively, then you're going to protect yourself from indifference. And if you use your head, you'll protect yourself from sentimentality. That's the takeaway here. And, and that's the holistic approach. You're not trying to block your heart and, and say, I don't want to listen to my emotions. You want to process your emotions in a healthy manner and use it constructively in decision-making. In 261, it says there's really no contradiction between Vipassana, uh, guidance of observing the transient nature of the feelings of aversion and craving without getting wrapped up in them. In my exhortation to use feelings to guide us, we are talking about different things. Vipassana is asking us to empty ourselves of the surface-level disturbances of aversion and craving. Chapter after chapter in this book has also asked us to go toward that emptiness. What happens when there is some emptying? We are able to see what's truly there. And there is something there, a fullness in the emptiness. The vibrations that arise from fullness in the emptiness is what I am after. And unfortunately, science only offers the same distinction of feeling or emotion to describe both. 
Oh, so I, I would love for you to talk to our listeners um, a little bit about that section right there. Yeah, this is a difficult thing to write about. But think of it this way, that when you felt understood, there is a sense of, you know, there, there is a deep set of feelings that arise. And those are real. Those are extremely meaningful. Those are absolutely real. And they are happening in the theater of your body. And, and those things are, if you follow them, they will, they will be a powerful guide in your decision-making. And, and at the same time, if you just bucket them with normal emotions like anger, hatred, craving, and aversion, we'd be doing ourselves a very big disservice because they're not the same thing. There are diff different levels of emotions. So I'm talking about what, what do you find when you've gotten rid of the disturbances at the surface level and 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 the whole point is i'm not i'm not saying that vipassana is off base Vipassana is absolutely on base it's just that we have to interpret it correctly and, and realize it's talking about the surface level stuff and and helping us say just just stop just stop reacting to that and wait and that's not no different from saying i refuse to judge others and every time I find the thought of judgment coming up, I'm, I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to stay empty of my agendas. That is absolutely a critical requirement for the value mapping conversation. So this is basically pointing out process-wise, science-wise, these are two different things, the surface level and the deeper level. And, and, and I think I say later on that it's this feeling of undifferentiated love that I'm after which in ancient India, we use the term ananda, ananda meaning joy, creative joy. And any other kind of love that's differentiated is a limitation. It, it's, it's a massive difference in degree, not in kind. Like all love is ultimately this, you know, comes from this joy, but it's a limited form. Whereas the unlimited joy, the unlimited love you feel without any preconditions, that is what it's called ananda. What does that even feel like? And I'm saying it's not, it's not a pie in the sky. It is something you feel when you fully accept yourself, when you fully accept someone else, fully without, without any conditions. So that is the game here. If we can get there, if we can truly love ourselves, that, that is phenomenal. And, and, and it's a very abstract thing to say, what does it mean to fully love yourself? And so the, the funny thing, the irony is you cannot fully love yourself if you haven't actually recognized the particulars, if you haven't recognized what's real in some sense about the conditioning. And so I'm entering that equation. What is reality? Reality is awareness of that particular conditioning. And when you become aware, oh, you know, Julius is, has these particulars, Somic has these particulars, then something inside of you says, oh, okay, that's wow, that's awesome. <laughs> you know, I accept. And you don't even have to say I accept. It's just there. I, I feel, uh, you know, it's like, you know, when you have a little kid, the best analogy I have is when you understand how hard the little kid is working to do something, you have so much empathy and you say, oh, you know, little kid, you did well. And I see myself patting myself on the back saying, Sonic, you did well. Okay, with whatever you're, limited conditioning that's good now who's saying that i don't know but it's there and it's um it's a voice of acceptance 
right? And and everybody feels it. Like when I do these mappings, I asked, I ended by um, yeah, by requesting the person that I'm mapping, saying, "Hey, now that we have it, look at yourself a little bit objectively, like as a third person, and say, okay, if this is your head, heart, and habit, just pat yourself on the back to this person called you. You did well. This is a pretty good, unique." specimen of, of the human race and you, you're grateful for it you know it's just like good good i see you imagine if you could tell that to yourself i see you what does that mean they should um yeah and that's a really good feeling to have they should continue to uh, explore um things that are in this book so that they can possibly have those feelings more and more um moving forward into the book you have um kind of like case studies in, in a sense. Uh, and the first one involves uh, Mark. Um, can you explain a little bit about Mark and what ended up happening with him by exploring his, his uh, introversion combined with, um, um, you know, kind of being in service of, of uh, others? Yeah, so... So let me let me back up a little bit and say that the the whole goal of this is mm-hmm. not to not to chase the feelings necessarily, but to look at what's already there and bring it into our rational apparatus, our our sort of the the conscious decision making process. That's the goal that I'm after, because uh, I mean, if you if you if you look at the ancient traditions, they'll they'll warn you hey, you don't want to get trapped into a game of sensations or feelings and chasing them. That's not the goal. The goal is when you when you stripped all the service levels, you know, things away and you find what's real, how do you make that your your foundation of decision making? And and Mark's story is where this young man, very talented, was a major in mathematics, came to me. He he was confused about what he should do in life and confused in the sense more because the world that he was engaging in was confusing it. And so he just wanted to figure out what he what he should be doing. And this was the first time that I had I had started to teach myself a little bit of neuroscience and realized that there was a skin conductance device, the eSense uh, device. And I asked Mark, hey, I'd love to have this conversation. Can I wire you and myself up and we can look at both our readings and see what tells us at the end of course the conversation won't be different and i will not be looking at the readings during the conversation but afterward and so that's what we did and uh, i also have a background in um actually background is, is a little bit pompous I, i'll just say that i have studied ethnographic field work in for, for my dissertation so so i have a huge regard for the ethnographic method and specifically going bottom up where you you make extensive notes on what you're seeing and then you have a separate step of making meaning from it when you look at you you generate your own data of two observations so so what i did was i created a protocol where i write down what i was feeling and what the conversation was about with in in some shorthand form with the time that this was happening the time is a critical uh, character in the story and 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 at the end of the conversation when i look back at the readings of skin conductance response which is you know basically on the science of galvanics uh skin conductance this is what 
Damasio and his colleagues were using. And, and this, by the way, is also what you will see in Hollywood movies when they have the CIA lie detector test. That's the science behind it. But all of those use cases, including Damasio's, are more about aversion. Whereas I wanted to see if we could use that to look at feelings of inspiration. So in a sense, in a positive uh, psychology sense, I'd say. So, so then the conversation begins and he talks about uh, the, the whole sense of hopelessness that's going on around him that he notices people are feeling trapped, you know, especially with the opioid crisis, people are struggling to deal with their pain. Somehow that was a very meaningful thing for him that why, you know, could you make a dent in people's hopelessness? And, and what did that mean? So that turned out to be a big, uh, big heart value for him. If he could somehow empower the powerless, and and when he said that, there was a peak in his readings. And the interesting thing is, there was also a peak in my readings. And he continued to have the high. And and meanwhile, I was exploring his habit at some point. And and then at some point, I started exploring the head. And, and my readings dropped because now I'm being analytical. Whereas he's continuing to be in that heart space. And when we were looking at the head, we were looking at uh, different alternatives that would fit his heart and his habit. And by the way, his habit was around poetry. Like he saw poetry in nature. And mathematics is, is really a way of, um, you know, he was able to find beauty in mathematics in a sense. So, so there was a poetry in his work as well, in his, in his math ability. And we looked at all of this and said, okay, what does he really need to do? And public policy was one field that he could have taken up, but we eliminated that because public policy was more around uh, guiding someone else, the government perhaps, and it wasn't active enough. So we picked entrepreneurship, but a different kind, more like social entrepreneurship, that this is something he wants to be engaged in. It, it feels right for him. And when we ended up with that, it was like, okay, do you feel understood? And he, he basically said, yes, I feel relieved. And you can see the readings, which are there in the book. There was quite a peak at the end when he says, yeah, I feel complete. So this was pretty special. And, and my readings also shot up because I was feeling his inspiration. So it, there's this whole you know, body of work on mirror neurons, right? So I don't know if that was kicking in. But it was there in the reading, so this was this was pretty powerful, and he ended up going. I've kept in touch with him. He went to you know he he wanted to teach um, science in Africa and and serve in some way there in the villages there. And so he ended up going to the Peace Corps in in some African country um, to to do just that, and that was the right decision for him. And he he now had the rational basis to explain it to his family. And friends that yeah this makes sense for me this is who i am mm. and I, i'm i'm and, and it's wonderful to reach that that point where you can actually tell people like this this is who i am i now have um uh, kind of like a guide in which i can follow um and that makes things so much easier as well when coming across similar situations in life um and so um, going further, um, you know, you, you also have examples of other, of other stories, um, breakthrough moments, um, 
but it's funny because they're not only like highs, but there's also lows, um, which I found fascinating. Um, for whatever reason, uh, in the section called duds, there's someone named Pete. Um, it seemed like it, just, like the, the, the skin conductance readings just kind of just flew right to the bottom. Like it's just, for whatever reason, um, it just didn't work out. And so like, that's uh, an example I found, I kind of found that interesting because I was like, is that because, because skin conductance readings is similar to the lie detection, um, tests that they use in the movies and stuff like that. I know this may not have anything to do with the book per se, but, um, does that mean like with those lie detector tests, something like that can happen where it's just like a dud? I don't, I don't yeah, know so people, I mean, if you watch enough thriller movies, right, they'll teach you how to fake those those tests. And and fake those tests, meaning, um, so a test is working on detecting emotion. And, and the theory is, or the science of it is that whenever you feel emotion, you're feeling it through your body. So you will perspire just a little bit more. And that is what you're detecting in the galvanic skin response. That's... So the, in the story of Mark, that's what we were detecting, that there's some difference in what he's feeling. And then, you, then you know, we end up imputing meaning. Okay, what does this mean? And we're connecting it to the conversation. And so in these lie detector tests, the idea is that, hey, if you're lying, you're probably in an aggravated state of some kind and feeling something. And so that's a blip, right? Whereas if you're telling the truth, then you're not making an effort to cover something up. So it'd be more or less flat. That's the science. And then people impute all kinds of meanings. Oh, that's a lie or whatever it is. And and there are ways to fake it. I've, I've seen enough thriller movies. One of them is the people will, you know, poke, poke themselves somewhere. So they're in constant pain. So constantly elevated. So you can't tell the difference between truth and lie. So all these silly things. Uh, not silly. I was like, I don't know. Uh, but but that's, that's my Hollywood slash Bollywood understanding of the science. But right, but but this example going back to Pete, right? Pete's uh, story was very interesting. You know, about the point where that the feelings tanked is where there was a palpable sense that he didn't buy into the framework. He didn't feel that his life could be limited to a specific set of values. Like he's like, no, I've got much more, and you know, he didn't want to commit. And and that point he was not feeling it anymore. And, and the nice thing is that reflected in his, in his mapping. And I wanted to include this because it's, it's, it will not be a science if you're only giving the positive examples. I want, I want to make it very clear that the framework in this book is not going to work for everyone. It's not for, and, and, and maybe life is far more diverse and complicated um, that if you try to trap it in one simple framework, you know, it doesn't work out that way all the time. So, and that's okay, right? It's, it's, uh, it's fine. So that's how things mature. Like you have to accept it. People will find better frameworks than what I have in this book. And, and I want to welcome that. Mm. And, and not everybody needs this kind of inquiry. I want to welcome that too. Right, right. Go, um, going into uh, the caveat section, um, you know, there are some things that people have to um be mindful of for example with the skin conducting conductance readings um they need to watch out for dry skin um 
<laughs> because uh, it makes a difference in picking up the readings. Uh, they got to watch out for phone calls. Um, since that also affects the readings, um, readings need to be interpreted after the conversation. Uh, I've seen that in movies where there would be a spike and they're all of a sudden like, oh no, you know, <laughs> like, what yeah, is yeah. that? Yeah, this is not like that at all, right? This is like, just do the conversation and then after the conversation is done, that's when I look at, oh, what did we find? And and this is where I'll just say one funny thing. When I've shared these results, like, you know, in, in, in a conference once and it's like, I had such a gendered response. Like women are like, wait, you needed to see these skin conductance readings to believe that feelings are real. That's crazy. Of course, feelings are real. And the men will be like, oh my God, this is amazing. Oh, and so, so that tells us something about the social conditioning we've grown up in. But the reason I wanted to put these caveats is I'm a big believer in citizen science. I, I'm not somebody who believes in the ivory tower version of science. I believe science is everybody's birthright. And you don't need anyone's permission to explore and contribute to the world's body of knowledge. And so it, it's my little act of rebellion here saying, look, here's the probe, right? The skin conductance probe, go get it. It's a hundred bucks and try it out and come to your own conclusions. And you might find better conclusions than what I have here. And that'd be excellent. So I'm just giving some caveats here saying, hey, just, just watch out. These are some things I've struggled with uh, when using these devices. And these might be helpful uh, markers there. And perhaps the biggest one is to be aware of pseudoscience because hey, the, the readings that you're getting are just that. They're just readings of uh, skin conductance. Connecting it to emotion is an intellectual leap we have made. So just be aware of how far you're going and what could be an overreach. So so that section, I would say, just please read that a couple times. Um, that's, uh, that's where we want to be very careful. Yeah, that's very... <laughs> Yeah, be careful of all those and definitely definitely read that section for sure, especially if you're diving into this. Um, and uh, so before I get into the questions for reflection, is there anything else that you would like to tell the listeners? Just that, you know, I'm, I'm glad you've stayed with us on this journey so far. This, this chapter is more of a gift that, hey, okay, now let's get into the science. Now it's because you have committed to this kind of inquiry. I want to make sure that you know there's nothing unscientific about this. In fact, it's a very ancient and a very modern science, both um, converging in, in pretty spectacular ways. So I want you to feel the same wow that I feel about this. It's just unbelievable. It's so exciting, so interesting. Yes, thank you for sticking with us for sure. Um... It's very, very enlightening and inspirational. And these are the questions for reflection. Uh, number one, how do you relate to the notion of embodied realism? Number two, how do you relate to the revelation that emotions are a critical apparatus for learning and good decision-making, and they don't just bias us, they also guide us? Number three, what opens up for you when you see the SCR data corresponding to moments of emotional resonance. Number four, what opens up for you when you see the scientific advances around feelings being correlated to physical markers in our body? And number five, what opens up for you when applying the values you discovered in the prior chapter into your normative foundation for decision making? 
that being said, that is the end of that chapter. Please join us next time for the final chapter of this book, Chapter 9, The Infinity. <laughs>